0: But not everybody, actually, and even if you have a quick reminder, um, this great being, this human being, uh, became completely enlightened, and he went to talk to his friends to sort, try to somehow describe this, and he could have talked about anything, if you think about it, completely enlightened, he could have raved on about the heaven realms and the Past and the future, there was so many things he was seeing into. So he said, the first noble truth out of this vast mystery of enlightenment, my friends, the, this life is filled with suffering. Out of everything he could have said, out of this compassionate heart, he said, this truth, there's just so much suffering, dissatisfaction, difficulty. There's sickness, there's old age, there's death. This stuff happens in a human life. And let's just get real with it. That's, the fir- that's how it is on this planet. First noble truth. Fortunately, he did go on. He didn't leave us dangling there. Like, whoa, okay, there's suffering. He, he said the cause, the second noble truth, the cause of this suffering, it's not the fact that, things change. And it's not the fact that there is sickness and old age and death. That's not the cause of the suffering. The cause of the suffering is that we attempt to fight with how life is. We attempt to grasp things like youth or, or health or something that is ungraspable. And in that struggle for trying to make it how it isn't, we suffer. And since we all do that all the time, and we're in a culture that absolutely, you know, uh, runs on this whole idea of grasping, we might as well have a little silliness with it. So I'll read you something that came out of a article that one of our good friends and teachers here, Ann Cushman, wrote, a yoga teacher here. Um, it's an article she wrote about interviewing roommates uh, In Marin County to get a new roommate in a house. So it says, um, this time our candidate was a wiry hostile woman named Naomi, shellacked with makeup, who jogged up our steps wearing a skin-tight spandex bodysuit and illuminated wrist weights. Throughout our meeting she steadily flexed and straightened her arms so as not to squander valuable workout time. What do you do, Naomi? We asked her. Well, these days, she said, I'm mainly doing my butt. Once you pass 35, if you let your butt go, even for a minute, you might as well just pull over to the side of the road and die. <laughs> so the words of wisdom from the Dharma, forgive me, that, that's just an example of, of a way that we all, in some way or another, grasp you know, at, you know, at what cannot be held on to. The, Suffering of trying to stay young or whatever. So, again, the Buddha went on to the third noble truth, the good news. There's suffering, there's a cause of suffering. And if it's this grasping, this holding on to what cannot really be held that is the cause of suffering, then it is this opening, this letting go that is the way to freedom. So tonight I'm really talking about opening, relaxing, letting go through the body. There is a fourth noble truth and it's such a huge topic that it will be, uh, it's for a complete different talk. It has the Eightfold Path, which is a complete path um, that leads to awakening and is the expression of awakening. And you may hear about that. You will eventually hear about that if you keep coming back to dharma places. So, over many years, I've been fortunate to get to travel and study with some really great teachers, some in India, Thailand, Nepal, Woodacre, uh, various men and women who, um, from different traditions, and the thing in common that everybody is saying, is the same truth. One teacher puts it like this. Grasping is samsara, or suffering. Non-grasping is nirvana. It's just down to that. Grasping and non-grasping. The Tibetan Buddhism say that who, Buddhists say that who we are in our deepest, innermost essence, they call the innate great perfection. Perfection that that's who every one of us is, deep inside. And that all of the um, grasping and aversion that we're all caught in all the time is what obscures this natural state, this innate great perfection. So awakening unfolds as we learn to open, to let go, and um, really deeply relax inside. So. We have a senior, venerable, extraordinary monk who's a teacher to many of us, Ajahn Sumedho. He's the senior monk in our tradition. So he says, simplify your practice down to just two words, let go rather than trying to develop this, or practice that, or achieve this, or go into that, and understand this, and read the sutras, and study the Abhidharma, and learn Pali, and Sanskrit, and then the Madhyamaka, and Prajnaparamita, and get ordination in Hinayana, Mahayana, and Vajrayana, and then write a book, and become a world-ordained, a world-renowned authority on Buddhism, instead of becoming a world expert on Buddhism, and being invited to great international Buddhist conferences, just let go. Just let go, let go, let go. He said, I did nothing but this for two years. Every time I tried to understand or figure things out, I just say, let go until desire would fade out. So I'm making it very simple, simple for you to save you from getting caught in incredible amounts of suffering. There's nothing more sorrowful than having to attend international Buddhist conferences. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you Ajahn Sumedho. So, for myself and so many practitioners, practitioners I know, many teachers I know, the most um, direct way the most vivid way that I and so many others have learned about letting go is through the body. Through the body. And that means, for me personally, uh, many things. One of the things is that my body will show me when I'm holding on and resisting. And my body lets me know when I'm letting go, letting go, letting go. Once I was at a teaching with a very beautiful old Tibetan, and uh, it was in Nepal, and someone, an American, asked, What is ego? And the little old, beautiful Tibetan said, After the translation, he answered, Ego is tension. And I remember thinking to myself, Oh, you know, he's, he doesn't understand. You know, I'm a psychologist, it's a sophisticated idea of ego, he doesn't really get it. Okay, years later, if you say to me, What is ego? One answer is, oh, ego is tension. I mean, he totally got it. It was me who wasn't, you know, getting what what there was to be gotten there. I mean, yes, there's psychological terms and all that, but it's, if you work closely with body-mind, it gets right down, it's that simple. Tension or letting go. So another beloved teacher, Stephen Levine, I hope you may have heard of him, Many books. He says the practice of relaxing and softening the body is the physical act of letting go which accompanies the mental act of release, a physical trigger for a mental phenomena that reminds the body of the opportunity for peace. So we can practice this level of Letting go, the third noble truth, anytime, anywhere. For instance, right now. Don't move, don't adjust yourself. Just notice any place in your body that, scan and see, is there some place that I can just relax. Drop in a little more. Maybe it's your jaw. Maybe way deep in your belly. Just, and then a little more. Keep looking back by your sacrum. Behind your shoulder. Melt. It's just the body letting go. Notice what that's like. Notice the effect on your mind. So we can practice this all the time. I was, um, I don't know if you've ever flown into Albuquerque Airport, it's where we go and we go to teach over at Lama Foundation or in Santa Fe, we fly into Albuquerque, so there's these steep high mountains that go just a drop straight down to the airport and you always fly in these little airplanes and it's very, tends to be super turbulent going in there and so I kind of had gotten used to it. Uh, But one day it was really turbulent, like bucking, bronco, kind of, you know, wow, that's turbulent. And uh, I noticed that the women around me, some of them, the passengers, were turning various colors of sort of green and yellow and white. And it was like, uh, they were really, really scared. And I looked in my own self, and I saw that my belly was really tight. Even though I didn't feel really scared, but my belly was tight. And I sort of went in to notice, and I thought, well, it's like my... Stomach muscles are trying to hold this plane up in the air, you know? So I thought, well, what if I just relax my belly? You know, the plane either will or will not crash. My belly being tight isn't gonna prevent that. What if I relaxed? So I sat there and I relaxed my belly and what I noticed was instead of feeling a little separate from those women who were yellow, it just sort of, they were over there. The first time I saw they were really scared. I suddenly felt love and connection with them and started sending them the metta that we did today in the meditation. So it's exactly what Stephen Levine was saying, that the body can remind the mind. The mind can follow the body. So when I just did a little relaxing, my heart, suddenly I, my presence could be there and care about these strangers. So we talk about letting go. What are we talking, actually, about letting go of? Someone might say, well, I'll let go of my job happily. <laughs> Many people are in the process of letting go of their houses, unfortunately, their mortgages, etc. cetera. You um, could all sort of wander around Fairfax with our begging bowls saying, well, we went to Spirit Rock and we let go, you know, oh, and here we are. And now are we enlightened? You know, of course not. So. There are some people who are actually called to an, a life of outer renunciation, into a monastic life, and if that's a calling, either for a lifetime or a few weeks or months or whatever, it's a, a powerful thing to follow. But the level of renunciation, the, the level of letting go that actually brings about the freedom that this Buddha is talking about in the Third Noble Truth is an inner letting go it's inner renunciation and the inner renunciation is our grasping at our ego's identifying with who it thinks it is and how it thinks it's supposed to be we're just letting we're not even letting go really of the ego we don't we need that to function we're letting go of the identity Layers and layers of the identity of all the protections and the defenses of our little ego shell. There um, is a tremendous amount of letting go of how we think it should be in order to open to how it actually is. And that's a lot of the Dharma, is opening, seeing how it is, and Can I open to how it is? So in my life, many people here in this room know me and uh, know that I've had an incredible sort of guru of um, many years, about 20 years of some health problems. And um, mostly, lately, I'm actually fine if I do enough Qigong and um, if I rest enough and I eat the right foods and all that, I basically am fine. But it means that there are times like like at this retreat, I'm not in here as often as I would personally like to be. There's things, or yesterday there was a very important meeting that I really wanted to attend and I really should have attended but I didn't attend that meeting. So there's things that I, ego me, you know, put my little foot down, I want, that I don't always get to do. And sometimes that little part of me has her little, you know, stomping her little foot, like, but wait a minute. That's not how I plan my life. And after all, aren't I in control? And that whole thing about how it's supposed to be creates, guess what? Grasping makes suffering. Yes, suffering. It is suffering to want something that isn't in the flow. So over and over again, because that seems to be the nature of how it goes, um, I come to peace and oftentimes just downright happiness when I surrender to actually how it is. I just let it be. I let myself be. Yeah, I didn't go to the meeting. Oh, oh well. Life is perfectly great, actually. Um, But our little wants and desires and our big wants and desires our, our ego is tenacious and sometimes I mean this is I'm telling you 20 years I'm working with this there are times it takes me working with all kind of patience sometimes it takes working with um grief sometimes forgiveness sometimes great deep compassion you know is is needed and uh in order to let go in order to let it be and I would say probably one of the main teachers for me of compassion in this life has been the fact of, of, of this suffering that I've experienced through fighting with just what is. So um, the Buddha once said, if I could only teach one practice, it would be mindfulness of the body. That's interesting. It's the Buddha talking, well, mindfulness of the body, and through this retreat, you'll be hearing various voices, various stories, various teachings on why that may be. One of the many reasons is that as we become very concentrated, we can begin to actually penetrate into deeper and deeper levels of ourself, what we might call body. And... We can experience, of course, you know, tension, pain, we can experience that level, bones, muscles. We can also, awareness can penetrate deeper and deeper and we can experience um, our, what would be called, body as a field of energy. We can experience our body as a flow. We can experience our body as a portal into the complete infinite mystery. That's one of the reasons the the Buddha said, uh, if I had only one reason, one practice, I would teach this one. Another one um, that he said, and Philip mentioned this last night, is that meditation on the body brings us into this moment. When we're being with a sensation, that sensation, Sensation is occurring now, and um, of course we know that we you sit you sat here today all day, many of you for your first day of a retreat, and you know that your mind <laughs> goes a lot of places, dreams and fantasies and memories and spacing out and plans and judgment. You know just. Anybody, raise your hands if you noticed any of that stuff today. Yeah, yes. If you didn't notice it, you were probably really, really sleepy. (laughs) So, meditation on the body is an opportunity to directly experience what's happening in the moment without the overlay of concepts, of story, without the overlay of all the analysis and the shoulds is just this prickling little spot of heat. And um, that experience of getting to experience reality directly is what helps us not be completely, uh, I'll put it this way, mindfulness of the body cuts through all that noise that's obscuring our true nature, because it's so immediate. Whatever it is, different people come to spiritual practice for different reasons, um, some are seeking peace, most everybody in some ways seeking happiness, or love, or freedom, whatever, whatever, If in those you know, joy, the only place that that, any of those things are found is in the present moment. Those things do not occur when we're lost and spinning off in stories. Mindfulness of the body is like a magic doorway into the present moment. So Thich Han, great, wonderful teacher, many, many books, highly recommend them. It says, the miracle is not to walk on water. The miracle is to walk on the green earth in the present moment. Peace is all around us in the world, in nature and within us. Once we learn to touch this peace, we will be healed and transformed. It's not a matter of faith. It's a matter of practice. We need only to bring our body and mind into the present moment, and we will touch what is refreshing, healing, and wondrous. So I imagine most people here, like I said California, 2010, you mostly have heard those sort of ideas, you know it's a good idea, to be here now, you know it's not the first time you've heard that, right and yet you sat here today and of course you notice and the mind is just filled with all sorts of things other than the magic of the present moment you know, there's just so much thinking and planning and comparing and judging and you know, it's just going on so Sometimes, at the very first day, sometimes it's just draining off and it just needs to drain off and things quiet down. And if you came here and it's your very first retreat and you think, my God, is every day going to be like this? (laughs) You know, no, it's not. Really, it is not. Things change, and in this case, it's generally a positive change. Um, Really lightens up after a day or two. So there's all this mind activity and sometimes it's possible that we drift in to all this thinking and story and fantasizing and memory to avoid the, whatever is occurring in the actual present moment in your body. So sometimes what's occurring in the present moment is, is physically or emotionally uncomfortable. It's painful. I don't want to feel that. It's not generally, con- we don't generally consciously uh, do not go into denial. We have mechanisms that just function. Um, sometimes what's happening that we unconsciously avoid is something so beautiful or so big, we just can't, we're just not ready for that. I think I'll fantasize about an IRS audit, you know, mm-hmm. anything other than, you know, dissolving in love or something like horrible like that. So um, avoidance isn't a bad, terrible thing. You know, defense mechanisms are there for a reason. It's not not awful that we sometimes have defenses against pain that's occurring. But when this avoidance becomes automatic, continual, and especially when it's unconscious, um, we become cut off. We become disconnected and we pay a great price. In this particular culture we live in, if you're a world traveler, many people here are, notice uh, many people who are world travelers say this is the most cut off of all the cultures they visited. Our good friend Wes Nisker says, welcome to America, heads are us. (laughs) Heads are us, we live from here, cut off, and there's an unimaginable amount of damage done because of this cut offness. All of the violence, hatred of racism, and war can only happen when you're cut off, disconnected. All of the harm that we can do to our environment, to our water, to our ocean to the air, to the soil, can only happen when w- there's a whole mass of us that are cut off. It's, as our dear beloved teacher friend Joanna Macy says, it's crucial that we feel. And mindfulness of the body awakens our capacity to feel. It refines our sensitivity. It brings us... It reconnects us with our life, our vitality, with what we uh, care about, connects us with each other, with the earth. So we don't, you might have some fantasy that I came here to sort of get out of feeling, Um, you know, I'll just get enlightened and I won't have to deal with that anymore. Actually, that's not it. Um, We don't come to repress or escape feelings. And we also don't come to meditation practice to become entangled or identified with emotions. But we learn that through this kind of practice, mindfulness practice, it's possible to develop a new relationship with feelings. It's possible to rather than be caught and suffering from an emotion, to explore it with compassion, with curiosity, with interest. And the way we do it, guess what? Guess how? Is through the body. Again, back to the body. We go, we explore it at the level of direct sensation. So you might think, whoa, I'm dealing with rage, I'm dealing with you know, hate, I'm dealing with, you know, something really ugly, greed, whatever, you know, that can't be meditation. No, that can be. In fact, that can be a gate to great awakening. And that's um, sort of news to some people who have notions or ideas about what is meditation. Well, it's like this, it's all loving and nice and there's nothing like mean in it or something. No, every, there's room for everything eventually in this practice. So I'll tell you a story about somebody who had a big awakening through uh, big anger and it happened to be a teacher that I've studied with named Ajahn Jumnian. Raise your hand if you've heard of Ajahn Jumnian. Oh wow, a lot of people have heard of Ajahn Jumnian. (laughs) Well I've been over with him on retreat in Thailand a couple times and uh, he's quite a character and eccentric and uh, many people consider him a meditation master. He's in his mid-seventies and He's the abbot of a very large a monastery in, in the forest in Thailand. And so he's stu- one of these people at very young age began, became just naturally interested and involved in dharma and meditation. Be- he began you know deep meditation. He was just a child. And he um, got involved in healing practices and did that through his childhood and his teens. So by the time he was 20, he ordained as a monk and very determined to get enlightened. And uh, at the monastery, he's a young male. So they had the wisdom, a strong young male. You know, they had the, the wisdom to put him to work doing a lot of physical labor. And he wanted to do meditation. So he would do the hard work for hours a day. And then he'd stay up most of the night meditating. For a year, seven years he did that. And at the end of seven years, he thought, well, I need a situation where I do more intensive practice. So he went on this retreat where he was going to amp it up. because he he's very determined to get enlightened. So he's, now he's doing more intensive practice. He's 27 years old. And if you know Ajin Gemini, I mean, I know him in his middle 70s, and he's this character. I can't even imagine the amount of energy he had at age 27. So he's, he's very intense. And uh, a group of, and this is his words, young, attractive women began teasing him at the monastery. Supposedly he was very handsome as a young. And they were saying, you know, tee oh, the monk and he's so handsome, oh, look how strong the monk Jumnian. And they were teasing and teasing him. And guess what happened? He got distracted. Well, big surprise. A 27-year-old guy gets distracted when a bunch of cute girls are teasing him. And the fact that he was that they were able to pull him off and he lost his mindfulness was so frustrating to him, and his words, um, he got very angry, not at them, he just was angry, he said that, I'm going to get his words, um, that he'd been practicing with so much diligence, and his mind was still not free, he could still be distracted, and he was really angry, and so he used mindfulness of the body, and He said the sensations were very strong because the anger was very strong. He was really mad. And he didn't stay in the story of the women and all this. He didn't stay in the story of I haven't gotten enlightened yet. He actually penetrated in deeper and deeper to his body, to the sensations, and in his words he said, I finally fully entered my body and my mind was tamed. So this, and he tells the story as one of the most significant awakenings of his life. And he's uh, at a turning point, and he says, Since that time, I experience life, but I do not suffer. My body may be hot or cold, but I do not suffer. The monks may be fighting with each other, but I do not suffer. So... um, sort of a dramatic story because they'd see how tired people are. At the end of the first night, might as well tell some dramatic stories to keep you awake. There's a, there's a possible little risk in telling dramatic stories, so I'll tell you right now. When you hear a story like this, it's of no value if you think, oh, I want to feel really angry so I can tame my mind or, oh, I got really angry and I didn't tame my mind. In other words, any sort of should that's attached to hearing a juicy story like that is is so useless. Um, As Stephen Levine used to say, stop shooting on yourself. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I tell the story to remind us that anything, including strong anger, including grief, including fear, can be the Dharma gateway into awakening when you practice through the body. And and I tell the story um, with that little warning. Don't then try to grasp at trying to make any experience happen for yourself. Don't don't have a you know a should uh, because you'll notice that the first those first noble truths function, and you probably already noticed it today that they they are functioning. If I try. To make an experience happen, that's a grasping, and there is a suffering, a tension involved with it. And the real treasures are found in the letting go. Raise your hand if anybody noticed today that you were attempting to have, trying to have some experience other than the one you were actually having. Uh-huh, okay, thank you. Mostly, it's generally about 100% of everybody. It's a big deal to completely let go, accept reality as it is, moment to moment. In fact, one Zen master said that is the a definition of enlightenment. So, so we practice, we practice opening, letting go to this moment. How's this? Oh, I'm tired. Ah, let it be. Um, sometimes we hear about this incredible third noble truth that freedom is possible in opening and letting go. Wow, that's incredible. And we're sitting and we're on retreat and we're practicing. And by the way, if you didn't know it, as the days go by, something called yogi mind can happen, which is that everything gets a bit magnified and you get more and more sensitive. So, you know, something, you can be sitting there with a little bit of, wanting, and it can just seem like the whole universe of desire and wanting, you know, things can seem magnified on retreat. You can get yogi mind. And you may be sitting there, and maybe some really kind of ugly feeling, something like a jealousy or something, that you don't want to be feeling, and you practice mindfulness, and you practice kindness towards it, and you practice relaxing, and you practice noting, you know, you do everything you can possibly do. You take a deep breath, and it's not letting go. And you remember the third noble truth, letting go, and I'm holding, and I can't let go, and it's not letting go. At this point, the notion, the should, of should let go is creating suffering. (coughs) It's become another grasping. So we let go of letting go. It's really about let it be. Let yourself, as you are, this moment, flat as a tire, tired. That's how it is. Surrender. Let it be. For a moment. For a moment. The, um, this, when we talk, or I talk about relaxing, like opening, we can get a, a shouldness in it that might make it look like contraction is a bad or wrong thing. Contraction is not a bad or wrong thing. It is just a painful thing. And it is part of life. For instance, every woman, every every mom here knows, every person on this planet is born onto this planet through a series of contractions. Contraction gives birth. Contraction is part of growth. So we're not anti-contraction, we're like, ah, contraction, open to that, let that be. So I'll tell you another story that you're also not supposed to try to make this happen. (laughs) Another story not to reach for, but uh, to try to keep you awake for a few more moments. This is a woman who was on a retreat. It was eventually a 10-day retreat, but this happened toward the beginning, maybe on the third day or so. She came in to an interview and said, "Um, this isn't working. I am so sleepy, and when I'm not sleepy, I'm restless, and really, basically, I'm considering going home, because there's no value happening here. And I said, you know, we said a lot of other things, but eventually I got to this question. If you weren't sleepy or restless, if you were wide awake and present, what might you actually be experiencing in your body, in your motion? What might be happening? And she knew exactly. It wasn't like she had to go hunting. She, knows, she said, Well, I know what I would be experiencing. I would be experiencing fear. And I don't want to experience any more fear. I have experienced plenty of fear. I came here to get rid of fear. And I I went, oh, okay. And she said, two years ago, I had uh, diagnosed, had surgery, I was treated for cancer, and I have two small daughters, young, who live with me, and um, I'm a single mom, and I live in fear that I'm going to have a reoccurrence. And uh, and I just, you know, she said, I've done everything to get rid of this fear. I've done EMDR and I've done hypnotherapy and I've done pillow pounding and I've done Bach flowers and I've done positive, you know, she just listed this whole, she said and none of of it has gotten rid of fear. So I was willing to come to this 10 day thing so that I could stop feeling all this fear. So of course I gave her the little rap, which by now most of you could give, which was, well, this may come as news to you, but we actually hear in this mindfulness practice that the Buddha taught we actually don't try to get rid of whatever it is, the grief, the unworthiness, the fear the loneliness, we're not practicing to try to stop something from happening, but rather we do practice to learn to meet, if in this case it's fear, in a new way And so, you know, I kind of remind her what we're doing and what we're doing here. First, we establish a a presence. We get collected through concentration. We find our breath. We find our body. We become um, calm enough to enter the body, become calm enough to be present and actually begin to to be in our body. And I said, then, um, if... A, you know, in this case, a fear, or if it's an anger or a strong sensation comes along that's so strong that it pulls your attention away from the breath rather than um, thinking of that as a distraction, that strong thing, that fear, for that few moments will become the object of the meditation. So it's not, it, it's not in the way, but we actually learn to be present with fear. Or whatever the difficulty is. And um, we meet fear as a direct felt sense in the body. Not the story, the diagnosis, and what the doctor said, and the prognosis, and, blah, blah, and the girls, and how old they are. That, that, not that whole thing. But just what is happening in the moment in the body. And I explained to her that doing this there is a process by which we begin to have a deeper experience, not just the thought, but a deeper experience, what actually is the nature of fear and a deeper experience, what is the true nature of you? Who or what is it that's experiencing this fear? And all of that helps us be with fear in a new way. So I gave her this whole wrap. And she sort of looked just disappointed, you know. That wasn't an inspiring thing for her. She said, well, that's not what I had in mind. But I'm here, and I'm willing to try this. And I said, well, okay. Right now, do you feel any fear? She said, yes. And I said, where is it in your body? She says, it's in my stomach and in my chest. And I said, okay, so go to stomach and chest and feel and tell me what is actually direct sensation of fear in this moment. She said, tightness, tight stomach, tight chest. So I said, so how is it to just be here and experience tightness? And she said, it's getting tighter. I said, okay, can you be with tighter? Can you be present as it's getting tighter? She said, it's getting really like my throat is constricting. My heart is pounding. I'm feeling a little panicky. I said, we, we can stop here. It's fine. Or we can just be present with this moment. Would you like to just see how it is to be present with this moment of this constricted feeling? And she, um, she said, I feel like this fear is turning into a wall that's trying to stop the terror. And I said, okay, so there's this wall were present, feel the wall. And she's just started shaking and sweating and then just sobbing. And she just began sobbing and said, I am so terrified of losing it in front of my kids. I'm afraid this is going to go into my brain, the cancer, and they're going to be left, and they're going to see me lost, you know, gone. And she then she said, I'm also... She said, I'm somewhat afraid of agonizing pain, but I'm also afraid of the unknown. So as she was sobbing and telling me this and shaking, she sort of started settling down a little, and then she said, I just don't know what to do. And I said, what's happening right now in this moment? So she started, what to do, the story? What's happening right now? She said, I feel like I'm slipping. I feel like the ground is coming out from under me right now. This is really scary. And I said again, this thing, I'm right here. We can stop here or go on. Or how is it to just feel this feeling of the ground coming? How is it to be with that? And she um, sat with it and said, I feel like I'm falling, I'm just falling. And again, I said, how is it to be falling? Can you tolerate one moment of this falling feeling And then she kind of was quiet, and she said, wow, this is interesting. I said, what? She said, what I'm falling through is sort of like soft black velvet. I said, oh, let yourself feel that. How is it? Just really sense in your body, and you can sense right now too, soft black velvet, and you're just falling through it. And she said, it feels safe. And I said, feel safe, the, the sense of safeness. Let yourself actually feel that as a felt sense. So I could just see her melting. She was just relaxing before my eyes, just feeling this safeness. And she, this was going on in several minutes. And as she was relaxing into this sense of safety, she was discovering that the this deep, soft blackness had a sense of infinite peace in it, that it was uh, endless and silent and completely peaceful, and she was very you know now at this point deeply relaxing into it, and as she sat in this sense of boundless um, peace, what she was experiencing was a uh, Vast, um, clear, (laughs) uh, she said, like a black luminosity that was completely peaceful. And it was so, she was so at home, it was so peaceful that she kept relaxing and actually allowed herself to dissolve into that vast expanse. And she just was. That was what she was sitting there as vast, silent peace. So for just a second, notice how you feel hearing that. And by the way, there's no "should. It's always good to check in what's my body feel like?" So, obviously, it's a really powerful experience, and by the way. A powerful experience at a meditation retreat can be just a powerful experience, doesn't mean you're enlightened, certainly she wasn't. It can be profoundly transformational, it can change things or not. For her, it, it, did, it really did have a shifting um, experience in a certain way. She actually called me a few months after this experience. She lives in a different state, and so I said, wow, I wondered what happened, tell me. She said, for the first week or two, there were waves of fear that would come. And she said, now the waves of fear are less. She said, sometimes I can be with them. I can let it be. Sometimes I have to practice a lot of compassion. And she said, sometimes I just go into my avoidance behavior. So she was totally aware of that. And we both like, yeah, it's great. Sometimes it's like that. And she said, really the most important thing now, a few months later, is that before the retreat... I really believed that this fear was the greatest truth. It was what was filling up the space. Since that retreat and that experience, she said, I know that there is an even greater truth that is holding everything, including me and my girls. And I know that I have a practice that can reconnect me to that greater truth. So that is a transformation when there's a sense of trust in something that she can you know, not have to live in with that horrible fear. So the, um, the great bhakti poet of India, Kabir of 1600, says, it's called clay jug, and the clay jug is, he means this body. Inside this clay jug There are canyons and pine mountains and the maker of canyons and pine mountains. All seven oceans are inside and hundreds of millions of stars. The music from the strings no one touches and the source of all water is here. If you want the truth, I will tell you the truth. Friend, listen, The God whom I love is inside. And the way the Buddha said something like that was, he said, um, everything that you need for complete enlightenment can be found in this fathom-long body. You need not go anywhere else. It's just that Kabir said that very poetically. So in the story of the woman who faced the big fear at the retreat, you could hear the letting go. You could hear those noble truths. You could, see, you could hear how her struggling against life was just really the second noble truth. The cause of the suffering was her fighting. And you could hear in the story her letting go of her resistance, her letting go of all that protection, her avoidance. Her letting it be as it was um, was what brought her to this incredible experience of the reality, the bigger reality that holds everything. Uh, And it had to do with when she fully entered her body. She was able to... um, surrender to something so big it's huge to even tippy-toe toward the unknown. And she in that particular moment was able to do that um, all through her body. And I think it's important to say that often if, if that sort of uh, gigantic terror is coming, it generally happens when you're sitting with someone else. It's rare that you face that kind of thing by yourself alone on your cushion. It just t- t- We tend to need another person there to be safe enough to do that, so you know that. And it is a part of, of the serious spiritual journey to face the unknown. But generally, the way it happens for most of us is through thousands of what's called little deaths. In her case, you know, there's this one huge event, you know, gigantic terror. But generally, this facing the unknown and letting go happens... Literally by sitting in a sitting and feeling this huge aversion to the tightness in our back, but just surrendering till the bell rings. Or feeling like I'm going to kill the person next to me because they're breathing so loud, you know. But then just letting go. Just these little letting go. The, the ego's having its little way in its little fight and it's got to be like this. And this little let go, let go, like Ajahn Choo said, let go. Thousands of little let-go's are what really move us through um, to the largest truths. What we find in practice, in practicing like this, by entering our body and being willing to be with what's here and let go, we'll find exactly what this woman found, is that under any fear, any rage, any loneliness, whatever it is that we're having trouble with, the only thing that will ever eventually be found is the great vast truth that she ran into, this great open freedom and peace. That's the bottom line. That's what's underneath everything. So ultimately it's all safe. I'll finish with a quote from Stephen Levine who says, when you let go of everything, only the truth remains the vast spaciousness of your true nature, the ocean of love, the ever shining. So we'll just sit for just a moment. Just a moment, and in this few moments, we'll notice just what is so, ooh, I'm tired. Oh, could we please take a walk? Ooh, my back, my knee, whatever. Just notice what it is, whatever it is, and just ah, open for one moment to how it is. And in the opening, let your whole body mind just relax, make room. Let yourself be. For your kind attention, aware that sitting and first night can be, it can be a long day and um, have a beautiful, it's just a beautiful evening to be walking. You have 35 minutes to do walking minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.